So uh, to catch you up, if, we've, if you've missed it, in Acts, we realize that the church is a mixed bag. If you've been a part of any church community, you realize that everyone is not on the same level playing field. You have people who are new checking it out. You have people that have grown up, so to speak, hearing the gospel, hearing the Bible. And you have people with doubts and fears. And so in Acts 5, what we saw at the beginning was two extremes. Luke gives us two extremes. One, Barnabas from last week. Barnabas is generous. He gives his land, gives it up to be sold so that the money given can be used to pay for those needs of those in the church, people he probably doesn't know. So Barnabas is the example of how to do it right, right heart, right gift in the right way. And, and God seems to bless him. He shows up 20 plus times in the rest of Acts. And then you have the other side, because church is a mixed bag, right? You got Ananias and Sapphira. They sell land. They give, but something's wrong in their heart. The word uh, that we saw last week was they embezzled. They, They took money inappropriately. They wanted to look good to the community. Look, we're generous. But really, they were stashing some away from themselves. And God comes, and in a way that's profound. I don't even fully understand it. God judges them, and the whole community knows that where God's people are, that's where God is. And God sees it all. Barnabas doing it right, right reason. And he sees Ananias and Sapphira. Well, Luke, all throughout Acts, gives all these contrasts, and we're going to see another one tonight. So we're just going to pick it up where we left off last week, Acts 5, starting in verse 12. It says, The apostles performed many signs and wonders among the people, and all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's Colonnade. Now, Solomon's Colonnade is a part of the Jewish temple area. What we need to know is when the early community started, there are no buildings. There's no power, no, no sound systems. They met in the, in the Jewish temple, and they found this area, and that's where they gathered to pray and to worship and to think about Jesus. So they're together, and what we see is positive, right? Signs, wonders. Amazing things are happening, and God is at the center of it. And then look at 13, because of Ananias and Sapphira. No one else dared join them, even though they were highly highly regarded by the people. I think that's a, a reference back to the Ananias and Sapphira. Like, they're scared. Fear grips the church because God's at work. And hey, when God's at work, if you're the one that's heart is off, do you want to go to church? <laughs> Think about it. If you knew that the potential of you being exposed, so there's this mixed bag, contrast, miracles, signs, wonders, blessing, God taking care of his people, and at the same time, those are afraid to join them. Nevertheless, verse 14, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. Like I said, like church is a mixed bag. Signs, wonders, there's fear from the outsiders and insiders, and God's bringing more people to faith. So far, so good. As a result, it gets even better. People brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. Crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by impure spirits, and all of them were healed. Every church has a reputation. And what we're seeing 
is the reputation of this early community, right? What, what do you get? You get these signs. One is people are so enamored by God's power that they're bringing people from around the town who are ill. Remember, average lifespan, 40s, 50s, if you're lucky. Few are living in the 70s and 80s. There's no common medicine and doctor practices like we have today. And so you hear about this power in Jerusalem and this Jesus who's raised from the dead and is still doing stuff through his followers. And so this church had a reputation. No buildings, no official staff, no website, no podcast. But what's going on? There are people who are afraid to join, maybe because of their heart. There are people who are added to the number. People are responding. And there are people who are bringing others to church because God's presence is for real. Now, that it also says something about church. Uh, what you see here is people are joining the church in the most turbulent time. Now, now it's easy to join a church today. I mean, would you agree? Like, was there a hundred question test when you came in? No. Like, as a matter of fact, joining a community here in America is super easy. There's no like big formal interview process, and no one's doing a background check. Are you legit or not? No one's asking how many of you know the books of the Bible in order, starting with Genesis, so the next book is. Okay, some of you are already out. You like, you know what I'm saying? It's, it's, it's easy. Now, the people joining, got to know, no building, and this group has the reputation as being outcast because Jesus was an outcast. And so yet, some of them press in, and even though the culture's against them, they go for it. What does it tell us? Don't wait for the right opportunity to jump in. Tonight you heard Sean just talking about how to serve in the kids' area. I'll just use that as an example. Don't wait for the right time. Because here's the problem. The right time will never come. You say, well, well I'm, a, I'm a student, so like I've just got a part-time job. I'm just trying to you know, keep up with Facebook. I can't keep up. I'm overwhelmed. And you're like, so, so when, when I'm a little older, that's when I'll serve God. Let me tell you, friend, with every year, it gets harder. More responsibility, more, more things to do, more commitments. Don't wait till you're a little older. When you get a chance, serve God now. You say, well, you know, when I get my career started, I'm just trying to, I'm using every bit of energy to really pour into my education, my career. Let me tell you, if you wait, you're just going to get more responsibilities. It's going to become harder. Well, when my kids are raised, you know, like right now I got kids and I got the commitments. I got soccer. I got lacrosse. I got tennis. I got bowling. Whatever you got. Like, I don't know. Bowling's not a real sport. Anyway, but you, you, it is real if you do it, okay? For the rest of us, we're like, whatever. Um, you know, well, when, when, when the time is right, the time is never going to be right for us. When God's presence is made known and you get, an, you get something within you that says, I think I need to take a step, take a step. That's the reputation of the church. Everyone, apostles and everyone else, does their part. But then we get a contrast. Remember, all this, the believing community, mixed bag, God's at work. Look at the next verse, 17, because it's not all good. We get to the difficulty. Then the high priest and all his associates who were members of the party of the Sadducees were filled with jealousy. Remember we've heard the Sadducees are the official leaders. The guys in the church, the church is meeting at the temple area. And these are the guys in charge of the temple area. And they don't like what's going on. They're full of jealousy. 
So what do they do? Verse 18, they arrested the apostles and put them in public jail. If you were here last week, they were arrested before. So this is two times in a row. First time they let them off with a warning, stop the Jesus stuff. Stop the whole, do the miracles. Don't preach in Jesus' name. But they continue preaching. And now they're arrested again. But look at verse 19. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. And the angel says, go, stand in the temple courts, he said, and tell the people all about this new life. Again, we're seeing this contrast. Can you imagine? You're arrested. You're Peter John. This is the second time you've been threatened and warned. By the way, Sadducees have the right to arrest you. Sadducees have the right to beat you. Sadducees have the right to push you to Rome and get you killed. That's what they did with Jesus. And so here they are again. This time, God says an angel. What does the angel say? Listen, go south. You know, go, go, go to San Diego. The weather is always beautiful. No. What does the angel say? Get out and go to the temple courts and keep speaking. This is this interesting contrast. God tells these apostles, you got to do some hard stuff. A little word of wisdom, a little encouragement. When God speaks to us about stuff that he wants us to do, it often seems hard at first. Would you agree? Like, me? Like, no, not me. Like, maybe someone else, not me. And tonight, God may be stirring you to do something. And let me just remind you, he tells the apostles in jail, I'm getting you out. Angel. They get right out. But he says, I'm going to send you back. And what do they do? Fortunately, they listen. Verse 21. At daybreak, they entered the temple courts. They did exactly what God said. As they had been told and began to teach the people. And when the high priests and associates arrived, they called together the Sanhedrin, the full assembly of the elders of Israel, this is the top people, and sent to the jail for the apostles. But on arriving at the jail, the officers did not find them there, so they went back and reported. We found the jail securely locked with the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. This is so comical. Like, this is God at work, right? Verse 24, on hearing this report, the captain, the temple guard, and the chief priest were at a loss, wondering what this might lead to, a.k.a. someone's going to get a beat down and someone's going to lose their job. Because if you're standing outside the prison cell and the prisoner isn't in there, this is not going to go well for them. And then, fortunately, someone jumps in. Then, verse 25, someone came and said, look, the men you put in jail are standing in the temple courts teaching the people at that. The captain went with his officers and brought the apostles. They did not use force because they were, uh, they did not use force because they feared the people would stone them. So, so there's opposition, but God's in the middle of it all. And at this point, I think, okay, I'm one of these leaders, Sadducees, priests, temple guards. I'm in charge. I don't like them. They get out of a prison miraculously. Oh, by the way, when Peter walks by, people are being healed. You think at this point, you're like, man, maybe I should just give him a fair listen. Who in the world is displaying this kind of power? Nobody. But it's very intriguing. While some group, the church, recognizes God's at work, there's another group that says, no, it's all a sham. 
And isn't that still true today? I think if I were to ask you, most of you, I don't know all of you, I know many, most of you, like, is God real and is Jesus real and is power at work? And you would probably say, yeah. And, and I'd say, how? And you may be able to tell me, like, one story in your world where you're seeing the evidence of God at work or whatever. I think most of us here, we have some sort of story. But that does not mean those outside of the church get it, right? And that's the contrast. You have those inside the community, they see the Spirit at work. Those outside the community, they're just anti-Jesus. And it's just a good reminder to us that doing good, the apostles are doing good, healing, caring. Oh, by the way, they're, they're giving their land away and giving out their resources to the poor. Doing good is one thing, and the church is often known for doing good. Following Jesus, that's another thing. And most people have no problem with you and I doing good. It's when we do good in the name of Jesus. That's where the conflict is, isn't it? And this whole belief system, no problem giving to the poor. Followers of Jesus in the Portland metro area are some of the most active, vibrant volunteers. As a matter of fact, there is an ongoing relationship with the city of Portland, even the city of Hillsborough and Beaverton, helping out with the DHS, helping out in the school systems. Followers of Jesus are full of doing good, and people may like that, but you know what? When you, when you speak the name of Jesus, something turns. If that's happened to you, just don't be discouraged. Don't be surprised. Guess what? Day one, it's happening. <laughs> in the early community, they're getting resistance, not for what they do, but the name in which they do it in. So they're, they're brought in to appear. Now, what, what happens when they appear? Verse 27. So the apostles are brought in and made to appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. We gave you strict orders not to teach in, and they can't even say Jesus, not to teach in this name, he said. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. The offense is, in the high priest's view, and most people's view, they already had a temple. As a matter of fact, the church is kind of using their building. They already had a book. They had the Torah. They had the law. They had the, the, the Bible as they knew it. And they already had a system they had a sacrificial system. They already had it. They didn't think they had enough need for Jesus at all. Again, you see the parallel with life today. Most people feel like they already have what it takes in what they know to be okay with God. And in their case, these guys are in charge. These are the leading thinkers, the leading teachers, the politicians, the philosophers, the doctors of theology. And they say to these like nobodies, you keep pouring this poison into people's mind, and you keep trying to make us guilty of this Jesus's blood. And that was part of the gospel. Part of the story of what Peter and the others are sharing is that those in leadership got it wrong. Jesus is Israel's Messiah. Jesus is the sent one from God. And the leaders, a.k.a. the guys talking to him, are the ones who've rejected Jesus. So they're taking it personally because actually when Peter's preaching, he's kind of preaching against them. They missed it, but God had a plan, and God will forgive. So, so they say stop preaching in the name. Verse 29, key. Peter and the other apostles, so we're getting a summary, but all of them speak up. 
we must obey God rather than human beings. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging him on a cross. This guy has a death sentence, doesn't he? And Peter is just crazy. They say stop preaching in the name because you keep making us guilty of his blood. So what does he respond? He's like, oh, by the way, you guys killed Jesus. Verse 31, God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior that he might bring Israel to repentance and the forgiveness of sins. This is the rub. The priests are there to lead people to repentance and forgiveness of sins. They're in the temple. People come to worship. These priests' job is to offer the way back to God. And what does Peter say? Jesus is the one who leads people back to God. Jesus is the one who offers forgiveness of sins. Not this system. It's Jesus. Verse 32. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit. You've got to catch this humor. Whom God has given to those who obey him. A.K.A. God gives the spirit to people who actually follow Jesus. Oh, by the way, none of you are. So you have this contrast. You have a guy saying, don't speak in Jesus' name. And what's the first thing that Peter does? He preaches the gospel again. I love this. you got to get this. Sometimes God is going to put us in places where it may be difficult to be a light. It may be difficult to actually stand for your convictions, for your faith in Jesus, to actually go against the culture, not against people. Peter has nothing against these priests. As a matter of fact, he's preaching life to them. He's saying, guys, you, you're, you're, your company, your crew, they missed it, but Jesus is who he says he is, and that may be difficult for you. What do you do when you and I face small or big resistance. Can I suggest this? Read the scriptures and follow Peter's example. Peter, in the face of, he has been now arrested twice by the same crew. First, a threat. Stop. They arrest him again, and now they bring the whole team, all 70 elders, and he's in front of them. Imagine you're brought before Congress. You're brought before a congressional committee to stand up for your faith, and everyone has evidence stacked against you. What does Peter do? He humbly but boldly says the same old thing. He preaches the good news. Jesus is who he says he is, and God has honored his son Jesus, and God is giving the spirit of life to those who obey. He doesn't give up on what he believes, and neither should we. Now, they're about to get a death sentence, it seems like, until someone steps up. Look at what God does here. Verse 33. When they heard this, they were furious and wanted to put them to death, which they didn't have the power to do it. But remember, they're in cahoots with the Romans, and the Romans have the power of the death sentence. And these guys are in charge of religious affairs on behalf of Rome, and they could get rid of Jesus. They can get rid of them. So they're about to put him to death, but... A Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law who was honored by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered that the men be put outside for a little while. Gamaliel. Gamaliel, if you know Acts, Paul, who's one of the biggest leaders in the church, 
is the teacher of Paul in his early days. Gamaliel was the first, he's one of the most famous Jewish rabbis. He was the first rabbi to be called a rabban, rabbi's teacher. But he's called rabban, which means master teacher. He's the grandson of one of the most famous Jewish scholars named Hillel. He is a somebody. He's a superstar. And what does he do? He says, guys, pause. Let, let's, get, let's get the Christians out of here. And then he convenes the rest of his Jews. And look at his wisdom and look at how God uses him. Even though he's not a follower of Jesus, God can use anyone. And he uses Gamaliel. Then he addressed the Sanhedrin, verse 35. And he says, men of Israel... Consider carefully, really think about what you intend to do to these men. And then he starts a history lesson. Verse 36, some time ago, Theodos appeared claiming to be somebody, and about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed, and all of his followers were dispersed, and it all came to nothing. At the time of Jesus, Jesus is not the only one considered a revolutionary. Uh, the, the times in the first century around the time of Jesus were turbulent. There were uprisings all over the place against Rome, especially in Jerusalem, because more and more Jews were getting upset that the Romans were doing ungodly things and there were ungodly rulers. So lots of people seemed to be stirring the pot. And Gamaliel says, remember Theodos. He's kind of like Jesus. He got a crew of people. He thought he was someone, but he was killed. So is Jesus. And he had followers, but look, in the end, it panned out to be nothing. Verse 37, after him, Judas, the Galilean, appeared in the days of the census and led a band of people in revolt. He, too, was killed, and all his followers were scattered. He could have gone on and on. There were lots of people who thought there was someone. Verse 38, therefore, in the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go. For if their purpose or activities of human origin, it will fail. Gamaliel connects the dots. Theodos thought he was acting for God, but it turned out to be nothing. Judas the Galilean thought he was acting for God, turned out to be nothing. These are Jewish leaders who think they are speaking for God. And Gamaliel thinks that Jesus is just one of these guys who thinks he's speaking for God, but he's a nobody. But in the end, God is the one who will vindicate. God is the one who will uphold. God is the one who will put the stamp of approval on his leaders. Theodos isn't one. Judas isn't one. According to Gamaliel, Jesus isn't one. So don't even worry. God will stop him. Look at verse 39. Uh, Leave these men alone. Let them go. For if their purpose activities of human origin will fail, 39, if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You'll only find yourself self fighting against God. Every Christian has a choice to make. This is, what we're, this is what we're coming to. Peter and John, the apostles, they had a choice to make. Are they going to step down? Are they going to water down? Are they going to take a step back from what they believe about Jesus? Or are they going to step up? Every Christian, every church has a reputation. Every church has a choice to make. Every family has a reputation. Every family has a choice to make. Tonight, think about the choices you're going to make. As God gives you more and more opportunity to get in relationship with those who may be far from him or confused or burnt, 
They heard the message. They went to church. But this happened. That happened. And now they're doubting whether it's real at all. You and I are going to have a choice to make. And when we're given this opportunity, Peter has his choice. He steps up and God uses Gamaliel in an interesting way. The rest of the guys want to kill him, but God's got a plan. You need to know this. Even though God may not take you out of that situation at the right time, God will step in. God uses an angel to get him out of jail. God uses Gamaliel to set them free. And in the end, we're going to find out, look at verse 40, his speech persuaded them. They called the apostles in and had them flogged, Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and then they let them go. You and I have a choice to make. If we're going to choose to follow Jesus, is that going to be lived out in public, or are we going to only follow Jesus when it's convenient, right? Only in here, only when other followers are around. When we get out into the real world, are we going to stand up when it's our opportunity? But when we make our choices, you got to know this. God is not necessarily going to keep us from what other people want to do, which is against his plan for us. What do I mean? God releases them through Gamaliel, but notice what happened in verse 40. His speech persuaded them, but they had them brought in, and they were flogged. Now, did God get them out of prison by an angel? Yes or no? Yeah, right, we just read that. Now, he, he got them out of jail by an angel, but did God stop them getting flogged? No. So this is where we need to come to grips with what it means to really follow Jesus. Now, what's a flogging? Because I'm like, is that like, what do you call when you have a wet towel? And like, what do you call that? Painful? What? Rat tail? Oh, whatever. You know, whatever you call it, don't do it. Like, you know, don't, don't hurt me. Now, ima- like, just imagine you getting a rat tail, wet towel, pop, and ow. Okay, what's a flogging? A flogging was a, a Jewish form of punishment that was 39 hits, 13 to the front. You were tied to a post or made to lay down. And with leather whips, you were whipped 13 times in the front, 26 times to the back. It was meant to not kill you, but brutalize you. It was meant to scar you. Why? Because it was judgment. In, in, in public, later on, as, you know, if you've been hit hard, it leaves a mark. As people see that mark on you, they know, aha, that's someone who's been up to no good. It was meant to embarrass them, belittle them like children, and inflict pain. A real warning. You better not do this again. But you know what? Interestingly enough, Peter and the apostles aren't the first people to be flogged, are they? Think of Jesus. Now, Jesus didn't have just a Jewish flogging. Jesus had a Roman flogging. The Jews did it with a leather whip. The Romans added a little bit of touch, like upgrade. At the end of the leather whips, they put rocks or glass or metal, and they did it to destroy you. So Jewish flogging, ow, scars, pain, could really, really hurt you for life. But a, a, a Roman flogging, that's what Jesus had. And it shredded his back and left him in total mess and blood. So much so that Jesus can't even carry his own wooden beam up to the cross. He's been inflicted with so much suffering. 
My point is, if you choose to go God's way, it does not mean that you live a pain-free life. We have to come to grips with what Jesus actually said. Now, how do the disciples respond? You don't, don't miss this. If you've checked out, check back in, give me two minutes, because you don't want to miss the response. Verse 41, the apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing. Okay, are they masochists? Are they like, are they on something? They have just been beaten 39 times, 13 to the front, 26 to the back. They are sore, to say it lightly. And they leave the audience rejoicing. Why? Because they have been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name, for Jesus. And what do they do? Verse 43, verse 42. Day after day in the temple courts, from house to house. So back at the temple, they do exactly what the Jewish leaders tell them not to do. They're like, we're going to follow God or we're going to follow you? No, we're going to follow God. And where God tells us to speak, we're going to speak. So they do it in the temple and house to house, in big groups and in small groups. They never stop teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. That's Jewish language. Jesus is the one. Jesus is God's answer to our biggest problem. And my friends, you need to see their response. Contrasts. Jews are supposed to be following God, and they're beating down Jesus' followers. Jesus' followers are trying to honor God, and yet they escape prison, but they suffer for the name. Now, this is exactly what Jesus' friend, a couple of verses, can say, like, why would, why would this happen to them? If God's so good, and they love Jesus, and they're doing the right thing, giving away property, loving the poor, being used for healing— preaching news of life and deliverance in Jesus' name. Why is God allowing them to suffer? Look at what Jesus said, John 15. We'll put it on the screen for time. If the world hates you, keep in mind it hated me first. Remember what I told you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. There is this tension. We're getting a contrast from Luke. The early church are not, ideal days. So if I were just there at the time of Jesus, it would be incredible. I'd really follow. Not really. Because at the time of Jesus, the time of Jesus' ascension, the church was a tough place to be a part of. Because people really wanted to hurt and kill you and didn't understand the message you embraced. And so Jesus had warned his disciples, a servant's just like his master. They hate me, they're going to hate you. Think of Mark 8. The, uh, Jesus called the crowd to him along with his disciples, and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross. The cross was never a picture of, like, beautiful, you know, art. The cross was where people died. The cross is where people suffered. The cross is where criminals went. Jesus said, if you're going to really be my disciple, you've got to deny yourself and take up the place of suffering and follow me. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses their life for me and the gospel, we'll find it. So there is this tension that in your following, in my following of Jesus, there will be seasons of what the apostles saw. God's favor, blessing, the place where they were meeting was shaken, people are being really made whole, God's presence, and then there's going to be times where we're thrown in prison, where it seems like we're pushed to the outside, where we're judged. There are going to be times in their case, where they're beaten physically, 
But look at their response. Two responses I don't want you to miss because I hope they're ours. I don't know about you. I hope they're ours when we hit our moments of suffering. Now, let me use this little disclaimer. Suffering for the name. When we suffer because of the things we've done, that's called consequences. Don't confuse the two. You disregard the scriptures. You disregard the spirit who's telling you, don't do that. You do what you know is wrong but feels good at the time. When you suffer for that, that's called consequences. But when you do what is right, when you follow God's plan, when you follow the spirit's leading and you suffer because of doing that, two responses I pray are true of you and of me. One, they rejoiced. They, 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 didn't, they didn't question God. Nowhere in the text we say, God, Peter say, God, why would you let this happen to me? Oh, it happened to your son. They recognize part of following Jesus is denying what I want. You must deny. There are things that I don't want to walk into, but following Jesus may lead me there. There are things I don't want to do, but following Jesus may lead me there. So it's not like just self-denial, like I'm not going to have fun. I'm going to live a boring life. And that's following Jesus. No. It's like there are things I want to do, passions I have, that may not be in line with Jesus' idea for me. I'm going to choose Jesus' way, and that way sometimes leads me towards suffering. So they're not looking for trouble. Don't get me wrong. They're not looking to pick a fight. But when you do what God wants you to do, you shouldn't expect everything to be perfect all the time and begin to question God's goodness because if he let it happen to his son, the servant is not greater than his master, nor is the student above the teacher. If they hated Jesus, there may be times where they push against us. The second response is they continue preaching. Don't forget that. They don't cop out. They don't run away. They do exactly what the angel told them to do. They step right back, temple courts, house to house, and they preach this good news. Now, why do they do this? If you look back, we've been studying Acts for a while. God promised them at the right time they would have what they need. Acts 1.8. We'll throw it on the screen for time. Jesus said, it's not for you to know the times or dates. The Father is set by his own authority. It's not for us to obsess about times and dates. Why God? When God? That's not, that's not the most important objective. It may be important to you, but that's not the most important objective. But you will receive power when the Spirit comes on you, and you'll be my witness in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. What God is going to do in and through even our suffering is bigger than we know. And so Jesus who is good, may lead us to a place that seems bad at the moment. But when we continue on, the reason you and I are here is because, think about it, 2,000 years ago, a small group of men and women did not give up. They did not stop. They continued to share this life, this, the words of this new life. They didn't quit. They persevered because of their obedience. This good news is still being spread. Think about our own world, our own life. You may not see a lot of the result here on this earth, but if you choose to follow Jesus and actually do what he says, there may come a point well beyond your lifetime that people, a few generations from now, you could be used by God to connect with one person who has a child, and that child has a child, and that child has a child, and a few generations from now, long after you're gone, because of your witness to them and their connection with Jesus, that great-grandchild 
could have a totally different world because of your witness to Jesus and you're standing strong now. We don't think in those terms, right? Because we're like, quick fix, quick fix. What am I going to get now? What am I going to do now? And the scriptures remind us there's a bigger picture. And God's bigger picture for us sometimes includes suffering. Now, what about the larger story? I'm going to give you a few stories as we get ready for the table because this is not just Bible. This is reality. First one, Michael. Michael Oriam is a pastor in the north of Uganda. And I met him 13 years ago about, and we were doing an outreach in a town called Gulu. How many of you heard of the campaign a couple years ago about trying to capture Kony? Kony, that rebel leader, the Lord's Resistance Army. Some of you remember that, right? Now, now that area, Gulu, was totally blitzed by Kony and the Lord's Resistance Army. So we went up, uh, myself and some others, to do an outreach there. It was so dangerous we couldn't drive from, from the capital in the south up to the north. The embassy told us don't go, but there was something in our souls. The pastors had wanted to get together and share the gospel, even though it was dangerous. And so we thought, look, if these guys are putting their necks on the line, we might as well go. So we chartered a flight and flew in. And when we landed, the, the army came out with machine guns, not to shoot us, but to protect us and drive us into the city because outside of the city gates, so to speak, outside, the Lord's Resistance Army could show up at any point. And I remember having dinner in, in the house of Michael and his wife. His kids weren't there, and I began to ask about his family. And he said, my children aren't here. They don't live here. I'm like, oh, where do they live? They live in the south, in Kampala. I'm like, well, I, I was so clueless. Why do they live in the south? And he's like, and he began to share the story. They don't know when the Lord's Resistance Army is going to attack. So at night, every night, uh, they don't turn the lights on. When the sun goes down... They keep all the lights off. Why? Because if they see where the lights are, the army will know which way to go. The LRA was coming in and stealing children and forcing them into child soldiering. Oftentimes, they would force the child to kill their parents. Or we'll kill you. Choice is yours. Horrible evil. And so Michael has been a pastor there for years and seen all of this mess. And I'm like, Michael, so... He's like, we had our kids here, but it was so dangerous, we sent them to school in the South. And when we can, we go down and we visit them. Here's a man, he and his wife, paying a huge price. By God's grace, it's better now. And the LRA has been pushed out and almost decimated, not fully. And things are better. But here is a guy who has served for decades in the middle of his life being threatened, his kids' lives being threatened, and making the ultimate sacrifice of saying, I am called by Jesus to serve here, but I want my kids to be safe, so I'm willing to send them to boarding school. Somebody say, how could a parent do that? Why don't they just go to where it's safe? My friends, don't judge Michael. Sometimes God, I don't know why, sometimes he calls us to do things that are hard. I'll give you another story. Alan, so that's Africa, in Europe. Um, a country I talk about a bunch. I have family living there, Estonia. Alan Lahr is like a hero. He's died a few years ago of cancer. Alan Lahr is born an ethnic Estonian, but in Sweden. Because of communism, he wasn't born in Estonia, but he had a heart to go there. And he ended up emigrating to Canada and was pastoring a church of Estonian people who had defected from communism. But God stirred Alan and his wife to go to Estonia 
and plant a church in the middle of communism, in the middle of anti-Christianity. And so they prayed, and their church from Canada sent them by faith, and they moved. And what happened in Acts was happening in Estonia. The power of God demonstrating himself, Jesus to be true, was happening. And people were coming to faith left and right because they didn't know the gospel, but God was demonstrating the truthfulness of the gospel in their gatherings. And it was like Acts 5 kind of stuff. But, but he had oppression against them and lots of threats. His oldest son, it became so difficult for his oldest son because he was born in a free country to move to a communist country. He couldn't take it. And so listen to this. Again, don't judge Alan. They prayed and fasted. God, what do we do? God made it clear to them as a couple, don't go. Don't go. I've got work for you to do. But in love, they realized their son could not psychologically take it under all the pressure and threats and fear. And so Alan and his wife gave up custody of their son to his sister to raise their son and take him to school in Canada with the prayer and hope one day communism would fall and they would be reunited. Again, some of us thinking his parents like, how could you do that? Won't you just leave? Don't judge Alan. Don't judge Peter. Don't judge John. Sometimes in life, God calls us to, to hard roads and things that are difficult by God's grace. By God's grace, communism did fall and they were totally reunited and Alan's son moved back to Estonia to serve with his mom and dad. It doesn't always work out neatly and cleanly, but God sometimes calls us to difficult things. A couple more. Brad, he's thinking, well, that's, all, that's Africa. That's, that's like Europe. What about here? My friend Brad, born and raised in Portland, Oregon, felt God call he and his wife and their four kids to move to India. He'd been preaching the gospel in India and felt called to move there. And he's from Portland and his whole family's here. But he moved to India to preach the gospel and love people in Jesus' name. And they did a huge outreach in the city where he lives. And many responded to Christ. And so they invited people who responded to a Bible study. Come to this restaurant and meet and let's talk about the Bible and following Jesus. And they made that announcement in public. And some radical Hindus heard about the meeting and showed up to the Bible study and threatened him and his father who were leading it. So much so they ran out of the restaurant, got in their car to get out of there, and the Hindus surrounded the car and started shaking it and yelling and screaming and pounding on the windows. Adrenaline kicks in, and Brad is able to drive away. And he drives away, and they jump in cars and start to follow. And Brad and his dad, their life is literally on the line. They find, by the grace of God, a police officer who stops the mess. But they had to cancel the rest of the Bible studies and be a little more careful over the next few months. But Brad does not leave India. Brad does not move away. Brad stays to love people in Jesus' name. What am I saying? I'm saying that part of God's plan for us sometimes involves suffering. Sometimes involves. Now, for us, it's usually not that obvious, and it's usually not that violent. Think of it this week. Did you catch it on the news? This Thursday, 12 of our brothers and sisters who are trying to emigrate out of Libya, Christians, to, to go to Italy for safety, were thrown out of a boat in the Mediterranean and drowned because they were Christian. Muslims in the boat 
threatened them, throw 12 of them out to die, and the rest of the Christians on the boat form a human chain to stop them because they would have thrown every Christian. Why did they throw them out of the boat? Because they believe in Jesus. This is this week. What am I saying? I am saying that what happened in Acts happens and happens again. Now, for most of us, God may not require that kind of suffering. But two things I want us to get. Number one, I want us to pray. Because we're not just part of a church in Hillsborough. We're a part of a church that is worldwide. And our brothers and sisters, some of them are under severe suffering. What can I do? Some are like, like, whoa, I'm glad that's not me, but what do I do? You can pray and ask that God... Not deliver them from trouble, because sometimes God wants them to go through to be a witness for his name. God, give them the boldness that at the moment they do not back down. Second thing is you and I ought to be open to whatever God has. You know, in your future, how about a chip or Sunday night message? God may require some things of you. He may require you to stand up. He may require you to move away. He may require you to give up. He may require you to endure physical, emotional, mental, psychological, whatever, suffering because of what he has done. Know this. Your suffering is not wasted. Because what we're going to find in Acts 5, 6, 7 is the church is about to explode. God is preparing his people because the gospel is going to move from Jerusalem to the absolute ends of the earth. So I started with this question or the statement, every church has a reputation, right? As we go to the table, I want us to think about this. What will our reputation be? What will our rep, what will we as a church, let's just say we're around 20 years from now, right? 30 years from now. What will the reputation of this church be? Oh, there's a great place with loud music and great coffee. What's our reputation going to be? I hope and pray that we are a community that loves people and at the same time has a humility and boldness that whatever God wants for us, we step into. And like Peter and John, we don't back down. My friend, God may requiring something of you. How do we live it out? How do we have that kind of reputation? Two things you see here is you see commitment to Jesus and you see a response of joy. And I pray that for us. No matter what God brings our way, that we respond with joy. So tonight, what, what is God, what's God calling you to? Maybe you're already in the middle of it. You say, Jose, man, I'm at Westview. Or I'm at Liberty. Or um, I'm at PCC. Or um, I work at Starbucks. And it's hard to be a Jesus follower there. Tonight, friend, let me remind you, by the Spirit of God, you have all that you need. Call on God tonight for boldness. Maybe you feel like you've been weak, you've been quiet, silent, embarrassed. Maybe tonight the response is say, Jesus, give me the strength to not just live for you here, but the power to stand up for you. Not in a mean way. I'm not saying go, go, go be mean. I'm saying that we rise up and we say that Jesus is alive and he's alive in us. Let's flip it. We started off with people being broken. Maybe you're just hurt and you're in need of healing. You need God to come in and heal those wounds. It it could be a wound of a bad experience at a previous church. It could be the wound physically. You're suffering. Hey, God's here. God's alive. And he can do what no man can do. He can make broken things well again. He can totally remedy your situation. 